Joined for a Thursday Locked on NBA by the athletic Sam Amick. A lot of fun stuff going on in the NBA. The Western Conference playoff race is turning into a dud. The eight teams are set. The Eastern Conference bottom teams are um, not very interesting and five games below 500, so we shouldn't talk about them as playoff teams. That's a different discussion for a different time, but there are a bunch of topics and storylines to hit in the NBA, Sam. So I want to try to see if in this short, condensed, daily podcast form, we can just kind of rapid fire through a bunch of them. I thought your chat today on The Athletic was just fabulous. Um, People should check that if they haven't. So uh, let's just roll through. I've got about 15 different things. We'll see how many of them uh, we get to. Uh, The underlying story of the Laker collapse we'll get to is the Clippers are going to make the playoffs and give up a first-round draft pick. How big a deal for the franchise is it that they're going to make the playoffs and the Lakers aren't? Yeah, I think that's the priority. That's the big deal. Um, I wrote a couple weeks ago, and as always, Mr. Locke, thanks for having me. Uh, I wrote a couple weeks ago that Steve Ballmer had made it clear internally that he wanted to be in. I was a little surprised by that, and, and I've joked with people since that it was one of those things that you write and you feel pretty confident about, but you certainly hope that their actions and their behaviors you know, bear out your reporting, if that makes sense, and certainly that it has. Um, they, they are definitely all in on the idea of sending the message to free agents that their operation is the one that is you know, superior and more worth joining than the Lakers. In fact, I've written a couple times. They even have an internal slogan, so to speak, that is, the black top, not the big top. And that's a clear shot at the Lakers and the circus atmosphere that they have. And, uh, you know, I, all I got to say is if Patrick Beverly is not part of the big picture for the Clippers, he should be getting some kind of under the table check as like their local PR man. Cause he's been leaning into that idea. But, uh, but yeah, I think it's, it's a big deal for them. Right, we always have a bunch of these little fun sideshows in the NBA, like when the Washington Wizards, and now one of the more laughable things ever, considering where their franchise went, all did the like funeral dressing in black before playoff series. But I have to say, the right. black top instead of the big top is one of the all-time best. It's like seriously the best ever. Well, and not only that, because to their credit, it, they kind of created it early enough in the game that they kind of spoke it into existence. Like it hadn't happened yet, because when, when it – became a thing and when i first wrote it then they had lebron in lakerland and they were fourth in the west and things were going pretty well and then certainly since then things have not and uh and it's actually worked out pretty well for the clippers if the clippers and we'll i'm going to just make this statement then move to the next thing if the clippers make the playoffs which they're going to and they lose in the first round which they probably were going to anyway and go acquire a major free agent or two and just got two first-round draft picks in Landry Shamit for Tobias Harris. That is one of the great five-month runs of an NBA front office. That is – I mean, actually, I'll let you comment on that. I mean, that, yeah. that is really yeah. masterful. No, I, mean, I agree, and not only that, but what led to it, and this is to Bomber's credit, was the fairly quick creation of that front office. You know, they elevate Lawrence Frank. They demote Doc Rivers, and to his credit, he kind of buys in on that plan. They add Michael Winger from Oklahoma City. They add Mark Hughes from the Knicks. They add Trent Redden from Cleveland. And they have Jerry West, last but not least, as you know, an advisor who, you know, whose role, I'll be honest, is often overstated, but his voice definitely matters. Um, you know, the other guys are, are working as a group and doing the work that you highlighted. I mean, it is a really, really good run. And in a vacuum, I think it's you know, one of the best options out there for free agents. 
They just obviously have to fight the branding that comes with being part of the Clippers. The Milwaukee Bucks right now are the third best offensive team in the league and the number one ranked defensive team in the league. That is not they for a while they were two and one. If they were two and one, Sam, the only teams in the history of the NBA that have ever been number two in offensive ranking and number one in defense or vice versa have all gone to the NBA Finals and have all won the NBA Finals except for the team that played the other time one and two was in the finals against them. Milwaukee, the old 70s, Milwaukee and the Lakers played each other, so one had to lose. In other words, there's been almost no team in the history of the NBA with the numbers of the Milwaukee Bucks that has not only been to the finals but won it. Are the Bucks that good? I think they are, and I also clearly should have consulted with you for the Bucks piece that I just wrote because that's the kind of knowledge you're bringing to the table. Um, I did about 2,400 words on why we are still sleeping on the Bucks and why they are my sleeper pick to win it all. Some folks on social media poked fun at me for calling them a sleeper. They're the best team in the league. But they haven't won a first-round series in 18 years, haven't won a title but that one time back in 71. Uh, obviously, you know they've lost two games in a row heading into – this game tonight, but I, I mean, I'm buying what they're selling. And here's my thing. You know me well enough <clears throat> that I'll play the numbers game. and We'll break down that side like always, but I'm definitely heavy on the spirit of a team and the culture and the locker room stuff. And having spent just a couple of days around Milwaukee recently, um, man, they, they are, they, they got something that not a lot of teams have this season. And that is joy. And that is camaraderie. And that is togetherness. And that's a major problem right now in the NBA and the Warriors, the Celtics, you know, teams like that. And even to a lesser degree, you know, Toronto with Kawhi is not the most joyful player, and he's in and out of the lineup, and it's hard, I think, to achieve maximum togetherness. Um, you know, Philly is moving parts that are trying to get put together, and guys may be thinking about their own individual situations. All across the board, you know, not a ton of togetherness. And the Bucks, man, they, they are killing everybody on that front, and I think that's going to help them in the playoffs. I love teams and coaching when I do my analysis and my pregame prep as a play-by-play announcer that rank like 25th through 30th in something or rank first through fifth in something. Like the amount of handoffs or the amount of picks or the amount of times they switch or the amount of times, you know, where they allow their shots. Because to me it means there's a distinctive philosophy in what they're doing. The Bucks are definitely this team in a really interesting manner. So defensively, Sam, they don't allow any shots at the rim, and they're the best at defending the rim. But they allow the most above-the-break threes in the league. So there's clearly a philosophy. Here's the one that jumps out to me the most, and it has probably a larger conversation on the league. The topic at this point last year was how the Rockets switch everything, right? We, the Rockets switch everything. The league's going to become an entire switching league, right? Wasn't at this point last right. year? So this year, the Rockets have switched 1,800 picks, number one in the league. The Bucks have switched 214 last in the league. So let me say it again. The Rockets have switched 1,800 picks this year. The Bucks have switched 214 picks. They don't switch at all. And when they do, they're great at it. Uh, Right. It's a pretty interesting philosophy that they have and that's working is 
they're just never going to go to a defensive disadvantage on a switch, and they are going to keep Lopez or Giannis at the rim at all times. It is fascinating, <clears throat> excuse me, to see that trend dissipate so quickly, and then you see kind of the the correction. You know, I think about the Warriors picking up Andrew Bogut. You know, the Warriors. I'd be curious if you. I don't know if you have those numbers in front of you. What the Warriors switch number is looking like this year? Number two in because, the league. Number you know, two in the league. Is it close to Houston at all? Um, let me go check it. Do you think it? What's your guess? Well, I just wonder if they're skewing away from it. I mean, especially having to integrate Cousins. Uh, you know, that's become a problem. You know, I was at that game the other night against Boston. And they had you know one disastrous switch with he and Alfonso McKinney, where you know it just you had uh, I forget who it was I think Tatum just alone at the rim with nobody within 15 feet because of a switch miscommunication. I mean switching with the bigs is problematic, <clears throat> and now the Warriors are having to you know have bigs be a part of a bigger part of the rotations because of the Stephen Adams and the Jokic's and you know the Joel Embiid's and guys of that nature. Uh, so we have seen, again, uh, an interesting little shift and pivot here. The answer is the Warriors switched the second most amount of any team in the league at 1,600. Um, yeah, so there's still I mean, it's a lot. The three big switching teams are Houston, Golden State, Boston. Actually, the two switching teams are Houston and Golden State. Houston switches 30 picks a game. Golden State switches 25. The rest of the league is right around kind of in the middle of the pack, which is 10. And then Milwaukee switches three a game. Like it's there, there, right. there on the other side of it. Sam Amick is with us. He's with the Athletic. Great chat today. If you haven't subscribed to the Athletic already, get Sam's work. Please do. Good article on the Bucks today as well. He just mentioned Demarcus Cousins. What do they do? We discuss it when we continue on Locked On NBA. Remember, your favorite NBA team has a local daily podcast on the number one local podcast network in the country. It is the Locked On Podcast Network. Tell your smart device when you get in your car to play podcast Locked On. Whoever your favorite team is. What do the Warriors do about DeMarcus Cousins, Sam? Um, well, I mean, listen, let's not forget he's had some good moments early on. Um, they even had a game against Boston where he did far better than he did in the second matchup. And, you know, so that's me trying to, I think, at least uh, have a soft intro with a silver lining. But it's, it's certainly, I think, a, a tricky, problematic situation going forward. And coming off that Boston game in particular – it's not only tricky schematically, but you saw the first signs or at least any time recently of his frustration level being higher. Uh, you know, the Celtics go out to an 11, nothing lead uh, based partly or largely on the fact that, that they were just attacking cousins and he gets frustrated. I'm sure Steve Kerr's thinking about, you know, all right, let me yank him and go smaller and figure this out. But you also have to be cognizant of, of not embarrassing the guy because he's worked so hard to get back and we all know that he he's, he's got kind of he's kind of a live wire and so then he gets upset with Aaron Baines and he's standing over him and now he's shoving Tatum you know and it got ugly real quick <clears throat> excuse me and, and he was you know chirping with Terry Rozier from beginning to end of that game so now you add in Andrew Bogut and uh not only is it you know I don't know what the minutes are going to look like you know let's not pretend Andrew's going to go out there and, and play 20 minutes a game. I don't think he will. But the locker room stuff is a trip, too. Um, I'll be honest. I, I think that <laughs> I haven't talked to Steve Kerr about this, so this is just me talking. I just, if I had to guess, I think Steve is, is probably just, you know, worried about his locker room right now. Kevin Durant's 
perpetually uh, unhappy with, I mean, the media stuff is kind of, I think, a, a symptom of the overall uh, the kind of place he's in. And then you got the DeMarcus stuff looming large. I think Steve going and getting the guy in Bogut who, you know, they've got some fond memories of and went through some things with and accomplished a lot is, uh, is maybe like trying to grab something familiar and, and get this thing in a good place. It's an interesting signing. It does seem as though somebody asked for him, doesn't it? 100%. I mean, I don't know who they, they sent over. I've read a couple times. I haven't talked to them about this, but they sent over a, a rep to Australia. You know, maybe a, a, a Kirk Lake of somebody of that nature. Um, but it does seem like this was, I mean, it's, listen, Andrew Bogut's not the guy from a basketball perspective who, you know, should have won this job, so to speak. The, the history, the relationship stuff, the chemistry between he and Draymond, who defensively at their peak were really, really special together. Uh, I mean, that stuff's all big time. And, and I do think, you know, that the spirit of that group being in such a weird place, it's a good time to bring a guy back that reminds you where you've been. All right. I'm going to be overreaction guy here for a second. Okay. You were silver yeah. lining. Nice guy. I, I, I'm going to go with a different approach. There's 15. There's 20 games left in the season. There's 18, which means there's really only 14, because you're not playing everybody the last week of the season if you're the Warriors. Yep. They're worse when Demarcus Cousins on the floor by a large margin. Like it's yep. obvious, both numerically and visually. They they can keep playing along with this for about the next three weeks, but they have to pull the plug on it at some point. And I don't know how they pull the plug on it. They cannot go to the playoffs doing this right now, or they're vulnerable to lose. Really vulnerable to lose. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, you're right. I'm being Mr. Nice Guy. Um, I was on press row at that Boston game, sitting next to uh, buddy Scott Cassiola from the New York Times. And I was quote unquote kidding, but I said, all right, Scott, here's my hot take. You know, Warriors are done in the second round. I mean, I, I and, and I'm writing this Bucks piece while I was watching this Warriors team get routed by Boston. And I, mean, I don't know. We're all prisoners of the moment, like right now. I, they don't look like a champion to me, you know. Um, and so I, I'm, I hear you. I just, and and I also think that we should not forget that when it comes to Cousins in particular, um, you know, when he came aboard, like right now, it feels like he's been part of the group for a while. It feels like they have to, kind of, you know, they have to give him a long leash when it comes to his role because of the part he plays in the program. Don't forget when it was October, when it was July, they picked him up. The whole message they sent was, you know, we need or you need us more than we need you. And if it's not working, they only paid him five million dollars and you know where the exits are. So it might get really interesting in these next few months. I mean, that's my question. I I really think I don't. So let me just make sure I'm perfectly clear. I've been openly spoken as a as a Utah Jazz radio announcer who wants the Jazz to win the championship, thought DeMarcus Cousins signing with the Warriors was the greatest thing that ever happened to the Jazz. Okay, like I've said that from day one because every possession he uses is one that Clay Thompson and Steph Curry and Kevin Durant are using because he right. cannot defend in the pick and roll the way Draymond Green or Andre Gudala can and because he's not good in transition defense. And so, yeah, certainly I'm sitting here feeling like – and he's 6'11", 275 pounds coming off an Achilles tendon. And it was a sunken cost of $5 million that they used on DeMarcus Cousins that they could have used on players for multi-year deals, so they actually had some depth. I mean, I just really thought it was one of the worst. It was the first time to me that I saw the Warriors break their culture 
and change and be do something different than who they are and what they've done. And from an outside perspective, it's like, whoa, that is a major moment and a huge mistake by an organization that's made almost none so far. Um, and I, I, I agree. To piggyback on that, um, I think there were some people who felt like, you know, that it fit their culture from the standpoint of we, our culture is so strong that we enjoy essentially kind of bringing in, you know, guys who, whose PR needs rehabbing and guys who hadn't been to the playoffs. Uh, and, and there was that line of thinking. I also tend to now look at it almost, this is probably a rough analogy, but you know, it's, it's like when you got a family that's not really that harmonious and things aren't going that well. And whether you're buying a dog to spice it up because everybody needs something different, you know, or you're having another kid when you shouldn't, you know, and the right. marriage is on the rocks. Like it, it feels a little bit like, you know, you're, you're reaching here to, cause they, they weren't, I don't think fully engaged after these last couple of years. And they acted like they needed something fresh, something new to, to give them, you know, a distraction, if you will, all year long and integrate a new big piece. All right. So their choices are one of three things at this point. All right. One of four. Let's be perf- Let's give all options. One is that in the next 14 games, DeMarcus Cousins somehow is a totally different player coming off a cru- cruel injury and, somehow reverts to his best forms, which then you could even decide whether that's good for them or not. That's one option. That, to me, seems like 3%. Their second choice is they stop playing him. And their third choice is that they cut him. Or their fourth choice is they put their head in the sand and they go to the playoffs for the first time with an incredibly vulnerable lineup. Which do they do? What was your first choice? That he gets better. Yeah. Well, certainly for their purposes, that's the the plan. Um, the problem with cutting him is it's a little bit like, you know, Jeannie Buss is, is, is the power rankings of and NBA people who believe in the power of, of making sure players think that you treat them the right way. That's Jeannie's big thing, right? I'm going to give Kobe more money than he deserves. And the rest of the NBA knows that we take care of our people. The Warriors cutting DeMarcus it comes, I think, with a potential negative PR hit, uh, either internally in the locker room with guys who like him and who would be upset with the way he was treated, or just even the idea from outside looking in that, you know, that, that you kind of, I mean, we saw Anthony Davis's father kind of going in on the Celtics for the way they handled Isaiah Thomas, things like that. Those optics would be tough. Um, then how do you care if they're tough if your number one priority is protecting the crown and protecting the throne? That's where the question gets interesting. Uh, but it's hard to answer that without knowing that we got to watch these next 14 games uh, and see how he plays. I mean, tomorrow night is going to be another interesting one, and I'll be making the drive to go down and watch Warriors Nuggets with Jokic doing his thing. I mean, you know, it's, it's going to be another one where uh, we'll see if DeMarcus can turn it around. Sam Amick is with us. We'll go rapid fire for the final segment of the show when we continue with the athletic Sam Amick here on Locked On NBA. Make sure you catch Locked On Fantasy Basketball, the daily show with Josh Lloyd. Gives you fantasy insight. Also a great, great way to run down what happens every night in the NBA. Rapid fire, Sam. Kevin Durant's chances of staying with the Warriors next year. Um, I'm going to say 15 your best guess of where Kevin – you can answer in more than one word, obviously. Uh, your best guess of where Kevin Durant plays next year? New York. Does Kyrie Irving play with Kevin Durant next year? Oh, boy. 
This is where it gets tricky. I mean, I say no, and then I now I don't know who Kevin's playing with, and now I don't feel great about my last answer. <laughs> I know this is rapid fire. I was just around Boston, and Kyrie took a turn for the better, and so that's where it gets tricky. I know for a fact um, I'm breaking all of your rules, David, but Kevin, Ke- Kevin, need, you know, I think they're searching for who that second guy would be if it wasn't going to be Kyrie. So there's a gray area there. You don't have to. I'm going to give rapid fire question. You can give long form answer. I don't mind that at all. all right. um, I'm at the athletic. Of course, it's long form. Right. Of course. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I mean, I'm just not moreover rather than kind of our extended conversation on the Clippers and the Warriors that we just had. I just kind of want to hit a bunch of a bunch of different topics sure. on that. Uh, the note. Have you been around guys, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, who blow with the wind more often than the two of them? It is interesting personality-wise how some of the parallels are there. Um, it's been a weird year for me, and not to make it about us, the media, who nobody technically cares about. It, but I just, it's it's a weird experience to have so many of these guys pissed off at us all the time. Uh, it's kind of honestly kind of bumps me out because I think we try to do a good job, but it's not just Kevin and Kyrie. There's just been a lot of a lot of uh, anti-media angst this year. I can explain this to you. I talked to you and I've talked about this before if we're not in rapid fire. So maybe at the end of the show, I'll get right back to it Uh, on your chat today. You were asked about Kemba Walker and you said the scuttlebutt is that he is leaving Charlotte. What are you hearing on that? I don't I can't finish the equation in terms of where he's going. The New York thing makes sense. But then it's like, obviously, they're going to go for Kevin and Kyrie first, Um, you know, and, and, and I think he's. He just the, the tone of the way he's framed his situation in Charlotte, the utmost appreciation and love and loyalty for those years, but then always acknowledging the shortcomings with his the, the ceiling of his basketball experience and in and, and a, a long body of work where if you're him, it's like there's just really no discernible evidence that that trend is going to change um, by the time you know you're you're done with your prime. So uh, with the you know. The, the New York roots, I think, come into play that, you know, I think that would be splitting the difference between like Jimmy Butler worries me as a guy that a team like the Knicks is going to give all their money to with his health history and his age. Um, but, you know, who knows? Maybe Kemba goes that way. The Brooklyn Nets seem to commit to Spencer Dinwiddie with Karis LeVert and then D'Angelo Russell decided to go on fire. Do you think D'Angelo Russell is in their long term plans? I don't know their books well enough to break down that aspect of it. Um, but I certainly, if I was Sean Marks would be making that happen because we always say that we give up on young guys too quickly. I know that at the Sloan conference, interestingly, uh, it was highlighted that, that that cliche that you have to wait three, four years on young guys, you know, analytically is not necessarily true. Most of the early tells end up proving to be the case. But with D'Angelo, you know, he he took a hell of a turn. Uh, fantastic year, and, and I'd be trying to find a way to hold on to him. What was your biggest takeaway from the Sloan Conference? Um, Adam Silver. Well, yeah, I, I was just Adam and his perspective on players. Uh, but to drill down on that, uh, and, and you and I have had plenty of parenting conversations, like culturally societally uh, the the social media cell phone aspect of that conversation where adam talked about locker rooms i see this every time i go to a game like you go in the locker room and none of these guys are talking they're on their phones you know if i was a coach and you could 
you could could be a dictator and tell your players what to do. It'd be a no cell phone rule because these guys sit there right after a game and they get on their phone and we try to talk to them and they got their head down and there's no organic back and forth between teammates, between reporters, between the coach. Um, That stuff really got my attention. I learned a lot. Uh, read a few things even since the Sloan conference, just about the science and the studies of how uh, the social media and technology is impacting our psyche. And so there was one panel in particular, not to go too long, but where um, George Carl was sitting next to Sue Bird, moderated by Tom Haberstrow of NBC, uh, mind blowing stuff where a guy from the tech industry pulled the curtain back and painted this grim, awful, you know, 1984 type picture uh, that scared the hell out of everybody in the room. George Carl's mind was blown. It's just scary stuff where uh, I think NBA-wise, you know, we are seeing that it's changing the environment in the locker room. Elaborate on that. I want to hear more about it. Um, forget the guy's name. Um, he was from a tech company that essentially um, would, would work with social media uh, companies. And, and bottom line, I guess I'll go the anecdotal route. He tells a story at one point, and bear in mind, the guy, it was Matt something. Matt was leaning into his profile as he literally jokingly referred to himself as all of our digital overlords. Like he was, he was our digital overlord. That he was in your life, that he was in your phone, he was in your head. Um, and he said, you know, we have technology where we can tell the way that a customer is holding the phone in their hand and by knowing the angle of the phone, we can actually, they claim to be able to discern whether or not that person is experiencing any depression. And he was trying to couch this story as if it was a positive thing where his company was going to do something for the greater good of mankind and be able to identify depression. And the entire room had the opposite reaction to his story, which was get out of my life. Like, what are you talking about? And like, it was, you know, and and cause then you're thinking about, your your Twitter feed or not Twitter maybe Instagram now they're going to spam you some therapist advertisements because they think they know that you're depressed um, George Carl in particular was super entertaining because he was the resident old guy in the room and he just kept fighting for the, the days of yore when it comes to how it should be and could be um, but it just there's a whole I mean it's a little bit not to go too far down this road but we've seen with the politics and the election, like the degree to which, uh, you know, there's, there's stuff going on behind the scenes that we're just not aware of. So it was filling in some of those gaps, and it was pretty frightening. All right, let's 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 elaborate on the Adam Silver thing to wrap up our conversation. Or, or I guess I should not try to do um, rapid fire. It's not in my personality. Uh, I can't shut up that much. My name uh, no um, So I've talked about this for a long time because I talk to our players a lot. The referee thing last year is related to the media thing this year. It's all the same thing. The players last year were just mad, and they took it out on the referees. And the players are right. just mad, and they're taking it out on the media. And the reason they're mad is because when they finish a game, as you're talking about, and I've talked about this for years because I've, I've talked to them about it, they've, at the last thing they do before they leave the arena every night is check their mentions. And they get told by some Yahoo in wherever it might be, you know, the stereotypical grandma's basement, but just any Yahoo, that they suck and that they are awful and that they got schooled and that somebody's dunked on their face. And they leave the arena in a bad mood every single night because of it. 
And so yeah. the impact of that is that the, it's not fun for them anymore. So Adam Silver's comment that the players aren't happy is absolutely true. And it's that the, they're, the, what the job now is includes this experience of being told what a piece of crap you are all the time, and, they, and it leaves them all in a bad mood. And that is so coming So here's out. my – I love that point. I think there's a lot of truth in it. Here's my attempt to be empathetic. You said at the top of the podcast, you mentioned my Q&A session at The Athletic, right? Yep. Um, you could probably attest and confirm that even off air before we started, I had a slightly negative tone in relation to the Q&A, right? Here's the part where, like, I obviously cannot relate at all to the type of stuff that players face on social media. But here I am, dude with one, you know, one – one billionth of the profile of one of these players. And there was a dude on the Q and a who, because I, I got a phone call at the beginning of the Q and a, and I was delayed. Um, he twice commented on there 10 minutes and no responses way to go. And it pissed me off. It was like, come on, man. Like it took the fun out of the live Q and a, which is stupid. It's one person. I didn't even respond. Can I jump but in? to your point? Can I jump yeah, in? Go ahead. 20 other people probably yeah. told you how much they appreciated you. You didn't hear him. You only heard the one. 100%. And that's yeah. what's happening to the players. 100 right. people are telling them how great they are. The one is all they hear. Right. right. Yeah, I know. And I think, you know, I keep running into occasional players who have cut the cord, and I actually want to learn more about how many players have done that and how hard it is to do. Um, Ryan Anderson comes to mind. He's one who has cut the cord. Larry Fitzgerald on the football side during a Sloan conference panel shared the fact that he does not even have any apps on his phone, which I found fascinating. Uh, JJ Reddick has cut the cord. Um, you know, I wrote recently that I thought Kevin Durant needed to not oh. read any of his coverage, but in that same column, I admitted that I look at my Twitter mentions too much, you know? Um, so uh, it's, it is, I don't think it's healthy and uh, I'm not kidding. When I walked out of that one panel with the guy, from the digital side, um, I was half jokingly saying that I was on the way out of the room. I was just going to throw my phone in the garbage. Like the, you know, it scared the hell out of me. Kind of the impact these devices are having. The uh, I'll wrap this up on on just on a personal note, and then on a note to anyone who's really interested in this conversation. I think of one thing of parenting that I've done of value that I'll share with people. Um, I I try to turn off my mentions. I don't do it very well, but I do consciously have them now that I have to take five steps to get to them, right? Okay. So it's not, a fu- it's not an open column in my tweet deck anymore. It's not on my app anymore um, because – and actually what gets me and I think also probably gets placed, when someone criticizes Quinn or criticizes Donovan or criticizes Rudy or criticizes Ricky, who I'm spending all this time with is the Jazz announcer, I get more mad about that. If they take the shot at me, that's fine. I'm kind of used to that. And it's not that big yeah. a deal. The other thing I think is important yeah. to our conversation, you and I are 48 years old with a wife and kids in an established life, and we're taking one one millionth of what these players are taking with 25 years of rings around the tree that they don't have and maturity that they don't have, and we don't have everyone pampering us in the same way also, so they're not probably very equipped to this. Like, I think that's a huge part of it also, is that the the age of these players and what they're taking it and how they're taking it without a lot of skills to be able to handle it 
makes it much worse than even and you and I are openly admitting like it pisses me off. Yeah, absolutely. And yet I hopefully have a wife and two kids and 25 years of life experience to know that I can that it shouldn't bother me. They don't have that. All valid points, uh, and everybody struggles with it. I mean, even after the game last night with Boston in town, I went to uh, to grab a beer with a couple of reporters, and we were sitting there, and I hadn't seen these guys in a while, and, and I was trying to be more cognizant than before of, like, hey, let's actually catch up and talk. But then inevitably in a small social gathering, we all fall prey to that thing, and you look up, and, and you got three, four guys on their phone. Right. You know, and it's like, well, why, do we, why do we do this? Why are we – here, you know, um, you know, I, I, it's all, I don't know what the answer is. I, I think the teams going forward, I have to imagine are going to try to push the envelope when it comes to having some sort of program and protocol on that front. They have to be careful because the players union is going to certainly deserve and want a voice. And the, you know, the players aren't here to just be told what to do. They're not kids, but um, it's, you know, again, the, the locker room thing specifically has really struck me this year. Like the Lakers in general come to mind I, I mean, I walk in there and, and full disclosure, it is irritating from a media standpoint too, because there used to be an environment where you felt more comfortable just checking in with this player and that player. But now it feels like you really have to be obnoxious, which is not my nature and kind of like lean over and put yourself in front of them because they're staring at their screen during media time and say, do you have a quick second? Um, you know, I remember asking Brandon Ingram, like what he does on his phone right after the game. He's a little bit different in that he's at least looking at text messages that his brother hits him up after every game. At least it's a, a personal one-on-one thing, not just scrolling through your mentions. But, uh, but again, it's, it's a game changer for the league. There's a whole other discussion on that as well, but the text message one's been going on for a while. Uh, I, our, uh, there are teams that, where players are checking him during halftime. Oh, I'm sure. Right? Yeah, um, I'm sure. All right, final note, the Adl- the Atlantic, not the Athletic, the Atlantic had an article probably nine or ten months ago, maybe longer, called How We Lost a Generation to the Cell Phone. And if you're a parent... I read it. So what I, I did, read it. What I did is I made my kids read it. And you, have you had this conversation with Howard Beck? Maybe. I don't know. He literally did the same exact. Okay. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I apologize. Yeah, that's fine. Howard at the Sloan conference sent me that story, told me how he had his daughter read it. And I'm in the process of doing the so same thing with our kids. What it allowed me to do as a parent is I'm not, I'm not disciplining you or asking you to stay off the phone or asking you to monitor your phone time in any way differently than I don't let you eat nine chocolate chip cookies. Right. And I ask you right. to eat a healthy meal and we want you to exercise like it's not anything. Di- I'm not denying you some pleasure that you're completely addicted to because that phone guy knows how to make you addicted. <clears throat> that I'm addicted to also, by the way, if we're honest about it in this conversation, I grab I sit at practice and grab at my phone for no purpose. The one that gets me, Sam, on the airplane, it's on airplane mode and I'll reach and look at it like Nothing can right. actually come in, and I'm checking it like it's a like it's crazy. So David, I, had, I just I I gotta own this. <laughs> this is too good to be true. Phone vibrates. You're in the middle of a speech about this, and uh, my athletic colleague in Wisconsin, one of our editors, tweeted out my Buck story, 
prompted the phone to buzz. And then as I'm listening to you, I'm listening. <laughs> I, I did it. I grabbed the phone. Right. Like it's, it's all the time. So I had my kids read it. And the only thing it did is it changed the dynamic in the house that I'm not um, being a jerk. I'm parenting you the same way I do about your ice cream. Right. Yeah. And that's I think, great. I think yeah. that's a good, di- I will share another one with you. It's pretty radical. This is my wife's point of view. My kids don't listen to this. So this is interesting. I've, I've always, this is really interesting by my wife. Um, and this is obviously way off basketball. And so we're past our 30 minutes. We're now just chatting, but whatever. Um, she's our philosophy of the house. I hope my kids don't hear this because they don't know this. Um, <laughs> is that the minute we give them a phone, we will never take it away from them as discipline. Because my wife's point is we are solving their problem for them. The number one thing when we give them this phone that they need to learn is how to self-monitor themselves on these devices. And if they can't do it and we take it away, we're solving the problem for them. Right. I like that. I mean, I, I get it. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's funny. That article was fantastic. I wondered if you had the same, this is a quick aside for mostly comedic purposes, but like I, I sent it to my son and told him, we're going to talk about this, my 12 year old. And, and you know, I'd like you to read this. I had not finished reading the piece myself yet. So then as I'm scrolling down and, and I'm going through and it's, a, and it starts analyzing sexual habits of young people. I'm like, Oh boy. Okay. Maybe we'll scroll over this. Part. <laughs> well, it was so long. It was so long. An article, yeah, like you had yeah. to hover over them to get them to finish it. So, um, right, right, right. You know, I don't know. We can have a parenting sex conversation some other time. I'm new. I mean, you know, I'm not. All there I would yet. say I is twelve is my oldest. Right. So, I've got sixteen you know. and fourteen. All I would say is I'm yeah. not convinced the past generations have parented that very well. So I'm trying to find a different way. Sure. Fair enough. <laughs> right? Considering the fact that the divorce rate in America is over 50% and everything else yeah. is going on, we're not. So, there's got to be a different way to parent this than just don't talk about right. it, be scared of it, and don't do it all the time. Okay, I'm sorry. Right. I'm scared. I'm right. 48 years old. Right. I'm still scared of it. Right. So, all right. Awesome, fun conversation about all sorts of things. Sam, always appreciate it. Thanks for everybody for tuning in to Locked on Cell Phone Usage and Locked on NBA all in one show. <laughs> Have a great day.